Welcome to episode 79 of The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben Wei. And I'm Matthew Timmons. Our guests on this episode are Lauren McElroy and Emily Lacey. Lauren McElroy is an artist and commercial sign painter and muralist. She recently participated in the first all-female mural festival, Ladies Who Paint. You can check out her work at 14th and F if you happen to find yourself in San Diego. You can check out her professional work at L Star Murals on Instagram and online at lstarmurals.com. She also has a solo exhibition called Now More You, up right now through October 27th at Elephant Art Space in the Cypress Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. You know, I paint abstractly and I can kind of let things be a little looser, but I still need those lines in there to show that like I'm paying attention to you. <laughs> and I don't know if you as the viewer or you as the art, but it's it's definitely a nod to craftsmanship that I think I, I appreciate in all regards. Emily Lacey is a folk artist, electronic sound artist, and filmmaker who lives and works in Los Angeles. When you're a performer, you live to perform in front of people for sure, but 99.9% of my life is process, so I think I better try to have a healthy process so that I could have some chance of enjoying it. At the end of the show, we're going to hear a first for the people, which is a live in-studio performance of Emily Lacey uh, doing a tune from her upcoming musical project, Gemstone Forest. It's a real treat, so stick around for that. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It is like a broken record magically repaired. Lauren McElroy and Emily Lacey, welcome to The People. Yeah, welcome, guys. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Hi, thanks. So, Lauren, Emily, you both are painters, and you uh, are studio mates. Yeah, it's like a, it feels like a luxury to get to sit across from this lady, Aww. Lauren. <laughs> I feel like we have like a pretty strong love fest yeah, going in sure. the studio. For sure. We, I feel like we provide a lot of, we've come to provide a lot of psychic support for each other in kind of a unique, slow, growing, gradual way. Let's talk about your paintings like, to sure. start because <laughs> sure. I um, am really fascinated by sort of the tech and engineering things that are happening in your studio. Yeah. There's a lot of wires. There's a lot of uh, <laughs> sounds. Yeah. And they're coming out of paintings. And I want to know a little bit about um, how that came about. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Yeah. So it's been about, I guess, maybe four years ago that that process began and I realized that I was increasingly putting myself in context where I would paint an environment or paint instruments or paint objects and then sing or perform among them. And so that's mm -hmm. been, that was kind of an appealing process that maybe started right after I left CalArts in 2006 or 2007. I was starting to kind of paint things and sing around them or be placed in front of paintings and sing and I just had this feeling coming out of this show that I put together at Automata where I had done that for maybe the millionth time <laughs> thinking wouldn't it be nice if the burden was wasn't fully on my body to make the sounds and and be disconnected in terms of the material from the paintings but what if I could begin to figure out a way to put the sounds in there 
Okay, I was going to yeah. make a joke about outsourcing, but that sounds exactly <laughs> like what you're doing, <laughs> which is that's really cool. Yeah, and there it's like I I enjoy performing in environments and having costume and 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 paint. You know, I used to paint my face when I would perform as mm-hmm. well. But there was something kind of magical and appealing and mysterious to me about what if I could kind of make these music boxes or evocative spaces where these kind of creatures could, like the paintings could become like an ecosystem or a family of creatures that that communicate. I love that. And so, yeah, it's just been a really long journey getting to this point. And I, they, they still aren't fully done, but they're at least like speaking now and they're singing and they're, they're kind of beginning to be in a state where I can bring people in and talk about them and, so I'm hoping to put a show together sometime in the next year or so where I can share these things with people. But it's terrifying. For yeah. people who don't know, uh, Emily is a is a prolific, I think that's a fair word, a prolific musician. And I think a lot of people that know you, Emily, like know you as a musician. Like that it is often very performative and there's mm-hmm. props and costumes and stuff, but that's that has been your main thing for a long time, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a valid point. Uh, I will say, though, that painting and drawing was really my first medium, though. You know, I started doing that when I was a child and kind of never stopped. And my album art would often have my own, you know, drawings and paintings on it. But it's true. I'm more known for performance than visual media. And some of the few studio visits I've done, people have been very surprised (laughs) at what I wanted to show them. Well, one thing to mention is that the paintings themselves are also about audio culture and about hearing and about sound and sound culture and sound phenomena. And so that's been a kind of thread that when I set out to make these pieces four years ago, I didn't even know that's where I'd land. But through them baking and progressing and changing and evolving, that's where they've arrived. And I'm kind of happy about that, that there's this through line of sound. And I collect textiles, and I grew up in a household where textiles and American folk art was collected. My mom was an antique dealer and an antique seller. What? How do I not know this? My dad is an antique (laughs) dealer as well. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. It's like a subculture. It's like a total subculture. It is. It truly is. Wow. How did we not talk about that before? How did that not come up? Probably having objects that are like 80 to 100 years old and seeing the packaging was probably my biggest influence. So I love old advertising. Um, Sears catalog type era things. And then we had all kinds of boxes of old pens that were um, beautifully labeled or I'm trying to think of what, what else looked cool. But I mean, he, my dad does less and less selling these days, but the house is still a treasure trove of wild Americana with just like a trip through history. Yes, And so probably a lot of it was the the commercial branding of these old objects. And and Lauren, I mean, a lot of your work is using super vibrant colors. And I'm just thinking like, uh, if your dad was in antiques, it's like, I would guess like, maybe the colors weren't so vibrant, but right. the designs were there, right. right? Yeah. So I think it's, it's bringing the color that I am drawn to that's in probably contemporary fashion um, and textiles and clothing 
into that that aesthetic, like combining those two aesthetics. So I like to dress, I mean, you can't tell from today, but I like to dress with a lot of patterning and a lot of colors. And I just find that colors are um, a direct portal into an emotional state of mind, or they can definitely like affect uh, emotions pretty quickly, kind of in a a similar way that music can. They just like get there quickly. People know what happy colors are. It's just a basic human thing from when you're like two to 95. And that's it. When you're 95, you just, have no just idea after that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, two to infinity. Well, you know, God bless you. <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth in that. Like that, the colors can somehow go beyond the constraints of language, mm-hmm. or like you know, languages from different cultures. You know, music and paint. People can respond and enter the space. I thought of a question I want to ask you about your paintings. Okay. <laughs> I feel like one thing I really admire about them is like how clean they are. Like your paintings are so clean. Well, thank you. The lines, <laughs> like like crystal yeah, clean. almost obsessive. <laughs> Tell me about that. I honestly don't know another way to be, like another way to paint. I treat the line, like I wanna show care in, in an edge and in a line. And I personally hate a raggedy edge and I don't know why. I don't know why. <laughs> raggedy ass edge <laughs> i think that's so interesting and i'm i've tried to push myself into different i you know i paint abstractly as well and i can kind of let things be a little looser but i still need those lines in there to show that like i'm paying attention to yeah. you <laughs> well I, I don't know if you as the viewer or you as the art but it's it's definitely a nod to craftsmanship that i think i i appreciate in all regards I like well-made things. I like when people show that they've um, learned a craft. Yeah. Mm. Well, I love that about your work because I feel like somehow taken care of as the viewer. I feel like, look at the space that she's created for me to understand. Wow, that is really interesting feedback. I love that. (laughs) Well, and, and your show currently at Elephant, Now More You, seems exactly tailored to that exactly that yeah and it's I mean, definitely using so like funny that we've already talked about branding but like this show is so much about being a fine artist and having commercial work th- pass through the hands of what I ultimately consider myself as a fine artist but I've been sort of on hold for 10 years or whatever <laughs> um, so I'm kind of coming back to it and being like wow I am selling things like my hands are painting things that sell things for companies. How can I utilize this? What, what does this experience mean to me? And, and it was kind of this intuitive process of making this really clean work that looks like it could be on a display floor selling. You tell me what I'm selling you. I mean, it's, (laughs) (laughs) um, and also it's a little disingenuous to say that you were on hold for 10 years because you were actually painting like a lot. That's true. Yeah. That's true. But I mean, I haven't the, been in the gallery circuit. Yeah, I've right. been sort of, um, yeah, I'm the hardest working painter that no one's ever heard of. Because <laughs> like, we should say you have a you have a mural painting company. That's you. Yes. Right. Yeah. And also you worked for Trader Joe's forever, right? Yes. Yeah. And they're still a big client of mine. And I have can't tell you how many cans of corn I've painted and how many Charles Shaw <laughs> bottles flying through the air or turned into a 
deep sea, uh, you know, submarine vessel or whatever. So basically, if you've been to Trader Joe's, you've, you've seen Lauren's seen work. work. But unless yeah. it's bad. If it's bad, then that one wasn't mine. Right, no, definitely not. Yeah. Didn't you say you had some wild dreams based on the Trader Joe's work where it was like these things would grow out of... Do you remember that conversation? I in don't our remember. I mean, I know I have because I'll fall asleep trying to come up with puns. It's <laughs> 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 like doesn't end. <laughs> but like visual puns, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's surreal. Right. Which is which? So that dreams are lot, kind of like that. They are, and yeah. I feel like there's there that is what I put into this show as well. It was like these really intuitive pairings that um, I think my friend Brian Randolph put it that. They look like they're supposed to be a one-liner, but you don't know what the one line is. You're like, oh, I get that, but what is it, though? <laughs> oh, that's so good. I and the reason you wonder, nice. I think, is to go to Emily's point, is that they, this show especially, like at Elephant, um, it seems very considered, right? And yes. considerate, considerate of the viewer. Yes. Like those clean lines that you were talking about or the just the general composition of the individual pieces or or the the composition of the entire show – like has that like this is for you yeah like i'm handing this to you okay to i out. was fearful that it was going to come off as slick like the clean lines would be a distancing factor so it's really interesting to hear that you feel taken care of by it i am there's bored. enough <laughs> there's enough hand in there it's like it's mm. not you know it's more like when you see rosenquists and who i'm sure yeah. you are influenced by yeah. uh like when you get up on a rosenquist a james rosenquist like it it's, doesn't look like a photograph, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, those things were meant to emulate the co- commercial billboard painting, and and from a distance, it looks like a it big works. photo. Right. And then when you get up, it's like you can see the hand. And I think yours, may, they're not as huge, right. so it's a little different. But when you get in there, it's like they are very clean, as yeah. Emily noted. But that that's a painting, no doubt about it. Right. When you get up in there, you're listening to the people on K Chung, sixteen thirty a.m. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. The People is hosted by Insert Blanc Press, so you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. And you can find us anywhere you find podcasts, and really, I mean everywhere that you find podcasts. Yeah, you can go to uh, Apple Podcasts and uh, search for The People Radio, and if you're there and you have a chance, leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. It really does. And now back to our conversation with Lauren McElroy and Emily Lacey. You were just talking about color as a pure experience. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit more about that and how you, you kind of came upon that at the recent Ladies Who Paint mural walk? Yes. Uh, it was fascinating. So I, I just did this um, mural festival that was 10 women. We each had a wall in San Diego, and we had a week to paint it. It's my biggest wall yet, 1,000 square feet. And... Um, it was a huge abstract design, one of the maybe second or third times that I got to do work like this, and especially in a large-scale public format. So I'm out there every day in a lift just like slopping color onto the wall. And every day it was amazing. People were walking down the street, and they would respond so intensely to just the color. Things weren't finished. These are abstract designs, so it's basically shape Based, you know, um, there are some indications of plant life and geometry, but the color was just seemed to be speaking directly to people, and it was amazing. Time after time, they would just stop and have to tell me that the color was something that was like so moving to them. I'm like, wow, this 
this, it, I'm on to something. And, it, and I was worried, oh, I have to talk about this work at the end of the week and really explain what it's about. And I realized it explained itself. It does, it's totally about the experience of looking at it um, and engaging in color in, in this space. And I'm leaving it behind and it gets to be a part of the community, essentially. I mean, it was amazing to co- get and go and see your work in public space and see people react to it. Yeah, like, right. When we were there, you're like, this is the artist. Like, no. <laughs> well, somebody came up as we were looking at her wall and wanted to know about the work. And I said, well, you can ask the artist right here. <laughs> it's like the timing was crazy. And, huh. But also when we were there the first night for the party and that woman who had just finished working out mm-hmm. came up to you, mm-hmm. all sweaty, <laughs> and was like, she just had to tell you how yeah. much she's enjoyed seeing the paintings go up. That's what is just flooring to me that people have to express this. It's like, your work is affecting me and I need to tell you. Like, I have never had anything like that in my life. And I've been making work for a long time. Can you talk a little bit about the organization that put that walk together? Because it, I didn't know about it until you told me about it. Yeah, so they're relatively new. But it's a nonprofit out of San Diego called Ladies Who Paint. And... um they shout out all the female muralists from around the world on Instagram all the time. So it has developed into a pretty large community really quickly. Um, and they decided to put on this first walk this year. They invited 10 artists from around the world. So there was, I think, six of us from the U.S. and then someone in from Brazil, uh, France, Canada, and New Zealand. And the tone of the organization, although I haven't met the people who created it, really reminds me of the spirit of something like the Women's Center for Creative Work, Mm -hmm. where it's about celebrating the community of women who make, who engage in creative practice Mm -hmm. in, in kind of all aspects. And it's very refreshing. So now that I know that you come from an antiques collector, dealer, Americana background, like I do. And you were talking about how you were especially moved and inspired by um, old Americana advertising and those kinds of designs and shapes and textures. Mm -hmm. And I can feel like I can feel I was really influenced by textiles and quilts. Yeah. And that's so obvious from your studio. It's like, the there's decades different decades that are represented yeah in the swatches that I see yeah. yeah so could you tell me a little bit I mean I feel like from an outside perspective now knowing that I can feel that you had this charm and you were emotionally moved by these feelings around those those first advertisement and ephemera and mm-hmm. and objects that you saw can you talk about just that about when you were a child and you did experience those things for the first time and Hmm. And and the colors, or how how you might see it playing into your work now. I I think the psychology behind advertising is probably the draw for me, and so how the language shapes this idea that um, if you engage with something, purchase something, try something new, that you can become a new person, and that we all are like aware of that, but then it still works on us. You know, it's very. Very much the American dream, too, yeah. tied in there. Yeah. Somewhere. So there's like, ah, oh, transformation. I can just become the new me that I need to be. Um, and the show, you know, that I did is called Now More You. And I thought this is way too simple of language. But really, it just boils down to that a lot of times that whatever the can of soda, the shampoo that you buy is about becoming a better version of yourself. 
I don't know. Isn't that what we're what we all try to do on social media too? Yeah. Like, look how great I'm doing. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> look at all this great shit I'm doing all the time. Well, Emily, what was what was your what, your reaction to that growing up? Yes. That sort yes. Of antique yes. Stuff? Exactly. Yeah. Well, for me, I really feel like my experience of quilts. And I would go around with my mom to try and find the quilts that she would want to purchase for her own business or for her own collection. Mm -hmm. And we would stand about 20 or 30 feet back and look at them. And I remember I would do this thing where I could, would kind of squint my eyes to just see like the shapes. And it, I think about it now that, well, that was a lot of my first experiences of beauty or like objects that were specifically being registered in my mind for, for value and for beauty. And, you know, quilts, the size of quilts are, you know, something like the size of, of, a, of a painting. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, a reference there. But it was also an odd thing of, like, my mom, like, actually listening to me. Like, I was the kid of the family, ah. but I was kind of, like, seen as, like, the little Buddha. Like, oh, what does Emily think? <laughs> It's so weird, but she actually, like, too much, like, too much was put on me for, for, for like, my opinion, like, about too many things, I'll say. But was, that, was that hard for you? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> at the time, pressure. I felt, like, so cool as, like, this yeah, young... you're the curator. Right. <laughs> yeah, making folk music, my affinity for old things, aged things, things that have a history, that things don't pop out of a vacuum, but that they emerge from a culture and from a time and a place and from material and matter mm -hmm. and manufacturing. And, and, yeah, I think... I think that that's in there. And I, you know, I am a musician and a singer, but I'm also very proud of being part of a tradition, maybe in the way that you can kind of connect with being part of a craft, mm -hmm. Lauren. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm a part of this tradition or craft of folk music in America or folk music around the world, you know. And so quilts and and textiles and thread work and needlework and embroidery. Often in my paintings over the last five years or so, I will do brush strokes that mimic needlework and thread work, or I'll actually embroider into them, or I'll cut pieces. Cutting has become a big theme in my work the last year or so. Um, and you know, so I'll take a found object like a quilt or a textile and cut it into pieces and then sew it into the painting. But then I've also gotten really excited by cutting my own paintings and turning them in on themselves. And for me, that's a visual, physical playing out of what I do with music when I take up a folk song. Taking this thing that has existed as a part of this chain or this tradition and making it my own through how I reclaim it and through how I sing it. Because a lot of these songs are a part of an ephemeral fleeting, fragile folk culture that's constantly on the verge of dying. And so there's, there's this thing about, I may have the last record of so-and-so, you know, or I may have, I may be one of the only people singing this one song from the high country of Scotland <laughs> today, you know? Like, I see music as a living thing. Do you approach painting and collage-based work and your music with a similar mindset or do they feel like they're two different aspects of yourself? I think it's very fluid. I think some years ago it was not so fluid. Mm -hmm. Some years ago I felt like I was wearing these different hats, but it all feels like it's settled into this long-term 
participation and commentary around sound and audio culture and, and how, how do our ears work and, and what are we listening to and, and what kind of sounds are we making and how does sound function in the culture to sell things, to make people feel things, to bind people together. So in your band, Gemstone Forest, are you the band leader? Do you guys write songs together? Good question. So it's interesting because Gemstone Forest is the first time I've ever put a band together from scratch. Mm-hmm. I was in one band right when I got out of college for a few years. It was a girl punk band, and it was really fun. But I was not really the leader of that band. That was kind of just this organic thing that happened. Gemstone Forest has emerged over the last year out of songs that I've written that I felt were not suited for a solo recording or performance context. So that was definitely a development and a kind of strange wrinkle that I didn't anticipate, but it became very exciting and appealing. So I write the songs and I lead the project, but what's exciting is that there's a very strong element of improvisation. And so I love to bring in people who are comfortable improvising because it, what I've realized is that the collaboration, the excitement around the collaboration comes for me in this idea of a, a kind of shared discovery process okay. where the song is written and there's a piece of paper and there's a structure, mm-hmm. but it's understood that that's just the outline. Okay. And we will improvise around that. And I, I feel like I'm kind of steering a ship. I'm guiding a ship, but there is a lot of feedback and a lot of waves different kinds of feedback a yeah. lot of feedback oh, you're fired <laughs> you're listening to the people on k-chung 1630 a.m i'm ben white and i'm matthew timmons you can find us on k-chung every third sunday at 3 p.m and you can also find us on instagram we're at the underscore people underscore radio And, of course, you can find us everywhere you find your podcasts. For right now, let's get back to our conversation with Lauren McElroy and Emily Lacey. So what I really want to talk about, (laughs) (laughs) my favorite thing happening in your studio, is that you are uh, experimenting with materials, one of which is electricity conductive paint and and that tape that you're using as well to to basically... um, make allow your paintings to make sound would you tell us a little bit about your exploration into that maybe how you got there or how you're using it yeah yeah so it's been it's been an interesting journey because I knew I wanted the paintings to make sounds but I didn't know how exactly Mm -hmm. I wanted that to happen and what I wanted it to look like and how much of the process I wanted to be visible or not so I will say my first vision that I had uh, I've worked a lot with tape in the past, cassette tape and various kinds of reel-to-reel tape and echo. Sculpturally? Uh, performatively. Okay. And it becomes kind of sculptural in that mm-hmm. it became a part of the environments that I was performing in would have tape or painted tape players or things of that nature. So the first idea I had was, okay, I'll make some cassettes and then I'll embed the cassettes, the cassettes in the paintings. And so that was cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I felt like that was really just layer one. Right. 
So then I kind of went down this series of rabbit holes about how I was going to do it. Um, and so that was interesting, an interesting process because I started researching different technologies that would give me the capability to move sound from, from one place to another. And so it was interesting because I started researching different types of devices that are used to sell products actually. Mm -hmm. So when you encounter a product in a store and it, it says, you know, this is on sale or you, you buy gas at the station and it starts telling you some advertisement. There are some devices you can find that I could kind of appropriate for my purposes and embed in paintings. That I thought was interesting because of how that object is used in the culture and how I could kind of turn it around to be used in my work. I also found interesting sensors and pieces of material that are made to go inside stuffed animals and teddy bears oh. that you press and squeeze. Okay. And there there are items like that that you can reprogram for this purpose. And cards I think they make that you can program, right? Yes. Like a one-time use. Yes. Yeah. So that the research became an interesting survey, survey of oh, like bet. where is that technology at and what are people using it right. for? Right, yeah. And, and how can I abuse it? Yeah. <laughs> Not abuse it, but I mean, like, how can I exploit it or how, change it? Yeah, hack it. There you go. <laughs> how can it be useful to me? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I came upon two key materials that have become very exciting. One is conductive paint and one is conductive thread. Yes. And those were really exciting things to come across because they spoke to me like in a in a first person kind of way because I sew and because I paint. There aren't materials that are essentially allowing you to do this technology, like use technology. Yeah, and it's so much more natural because honestly, I've tried to solder many, many times. Basically, what I've realized is that this new material in my work is actually electricity. Mm-hmm. And it's how can I move electricity and move sound from place to place in a way that is strategic in terms of this painted uh, family or this painted ecosystem. And so I realized that this was not an easy process. Mm -hmm. This was really, really hard Mm -hmm. for me to begin to try and open up the technology and open up the electronics and open up the electricity to understand how I can reroute it for what I want it to do. Music gear has a certain amount of technology within it, but as far as like building circuits, no. I've never done anything like that. Yeah. And I, as I've gone through this process the last four years trying to figure out how to do this work, there has been like this ulcer, like <laughs> anxiety trying to figure this out. And I tried to work with other people to try and make it happen, didn't happen, didn't happen. Finally, I, you know, once I discovered these other materials, I started to see a way I could do it. And so I still have had to learn some programming, but I've learned it, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the paint, the conductive paint, and the conductive thread have kind of given me the confidence to like go in there and find it in this certain way. Yeah. But I will say, I do think that women are excluded from these kinds of uh conventionally excluded and historically excluded from these kinds of experiences to make them believe that they're capable of changing technology or building their own instruments or, you know, and that 
I think that as I've gone back and looked at some films from my childhood, like E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Mm -hmm. as I have looked at the palette for this new work and gone back to those films as kind of sources for inspiration in a certain way, I really noticed the gender politics in those movies and how the girls and the women in those movies are constantly told that technology is not for them. Right. And magic is really not for them yeah. if, if magic comes through technology. Yeah, I've definitely never thought it was for me. But what's fascinating is that you're, you're applying it to quilting. I mean, you're yeah. applying it to this, traditional, this tradition that is mostly carried through um, women's work. Yeah. And you're electrifying quilts, you know, in, in yeah. a sense, and painting. Yeah. Um, and using them in paintings and things. But I related to that, and I forget when I realized this. Maybe a few weeks ago, I was walking through our studios, and I thought, yeah, Emily works with quilts, but she's got machinery and electronics everywhere. It's just covered. And the wires become the threads, um, and it's just it's doing a different thing. It's, it's, she's bringing them to life, and there's these masculine and feminine elements. And I'm working with um, a lot of sign painting that has been a traditionally male-dominated field, and it's hard, grueling work that's about perfection, which perhaps maybe that explains some uh, obsession with the clean lines. It's like, I want to I wanna be just as good as those who have come before me. And I don't think I am. And there's something that, um, that sign painters always say, they're not artists and they are, they're, they're learning until the day they die, which is one thing I, I do kind of respect about that craft is that there are not really master sign painters. You just get better and learn more and then begin to teach, but you are still learning. You know, that's really interesting because that's how I feel about music. I feel like you can never truly master yeah. music. Like you can That's beautiful. You know, and you why can always why? keep learning. Yeah, yeah, why would you why would you? Yeah. I feel like that's that's the joy of discovery. And Emily, you do you do that through your folk music, but you also write your own songs, and so you're you're a writer as yeah. well. You're dealing with text in a way that is very direct. Tell us about like your work as a as a lyricist. Yeah, that's really interesting because that makes me realize too. I've done a lot of writing of pure poems over the last couple of years as well, like a really huge uptick in that activity. And as I've come to understand myself as a folk artist of a certain kind, it it just, it all makes sense that there's this extension of a lyrical practice that began with writing music and recording all these records and writing all these songs. But yeah, there's something about writing and the oral tradition and text. I do, I'm very seduced by words and, and I'll the lyric and being, you know, often a song will start just with a phrase coming into my brain and trying to give a sound to that. When you write, is there um, is there consideration to what the other person receives? Does it come out of you with that purpose, or is it just that it has to come out of you? Well, it's twofold. So I often start from improvisation in which I try not to give any kind of fucks about <laughs> anything. <laughs> I try to just like open the space, riff, no pressure for anything to be a masterpiece, no pressure for it to be like a fully formed thought. And that's 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 kind of where I get started. But part of my practice is recording almost every single practice that I do. 
every single improvisation that I do because I never know what's going to come out. And so what hap- my process is basically improvise without judgment, without fear, uh, and then listen, see what I might find interesting. Okay. It's almost like that first phase is just a drawing yeah. or a sketch. Yeah. And then I might find out of an hour, an hour and a half practice, I might find three minutes that are really interesting, and then that becomes the basis for a new song. So you go into editor mode is exactly. the second. Right. Yeah, and then it's like, okay, listen, and then type what I hear, mm-hmm. and, and then think about what I could expand from there. And then it's, then it's a lot of critica- like criticality and judgment and shaping and contours to try and get it to a place where I'm comfortable with the writing of it. You have a lot of patience, it sounds like. You trust in the process, and you know it's not a quick, like it's a journey that you're willing to take each time, it sounds like. My therapist always says <laughs> it's a marathon, marathon, not a sprint, and I truly believe that. But it's hard, you know. I just, I, I also believe that 90, when you're a performer, you live to perform mm-hmm. in front of people for sure, but 99.9% of my life is process. So I think I better try to have a healthy process so that I could have some chance of enjoying it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Because it can't be about how things are received. I mean, and ending a project will be just, uh, it's a high and a low. It's a heartbreak, too, to let something go, to be finished. Yeah, yeah. So you've just finished, well, kind of finished two big projects. Yeah. How are you feeling about your this run of activity I emotionally. I've been anticipating that I could have a big low, and I'm really trying to um, go to the ocean this week, I think. Good. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want that to happen. I'm just aware that like my, my highs and lows have been exaggerated recently. I finished two major things within two weeks of each other, like the biggest mural I ever painted and the first gallery show I've ever had. And if I would have had any say in where they were in my schedule I would have put them six months apart you know <laughs> totally but um I'll take it so I said yes and and they were one week apart and it uh I'm coming off that in the clouds so thankful for a lot of support and the ability like proud of myself for the ability to do it but also like oh man what's next how do I how do I move forward uh, yeah and I think um I'm gonna sort of Take, I'm hearing what you're saying and just like revel in the process. This is a cyclical thing. Yeah. The next thing will start and it's it can be intuitive. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the planned out thing. I don't have to have it all set in stone. So we're going to take a little bit of a break. And then when we come back, if my guitar works, then we <laughs> hopefully will play a song for us. Awesome. Fingers crossed. <laughs> You've been listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can find us on Instagram at the underscore people underscore radio. And you can find us anywhere you find podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, everywhere by searching for The People Radio. And our interstitial music, as always, is Ockfiff by Lewis Keller. And now we're going to go out with a very special treat. It's a first for The People. It's our guest, Emily Lacey, doing a live in-studio performance from her upcoming musical project, Gemstone Forest. And the name of the song is Waiting. All right, should I do it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll just say a little bit about the song. It's called Waiting at the moment. And it's a new song that I've been working with my band on, my band Gemstone Forest. 
And yeah, I kind of picture like 1970s on a ship, on a ferry somewhere, a young man with like maybe a leather bomber jacket. Yeah, that's what I picture. <laughs> also, satin, satin sheets. <laughs> Waiting for you 
knows what to do with this body, with this soul, with this mind, with this mind. With this heart, with this landmine, with this coal, don't you see what all the hurt was for before you go? Just open up the door I'll be waiting For you At the dark bay Waiting On our love To wait out the war Ha, ha, ha.